Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 178 of the GDPR Weekly Show and coming up in this week's episode, we have news that the Austrian Data Protection Authority has ruled on the use of data analytics and its invitation under SREMS 2. We then travel to Sheffield in the UK, where Sheffield City Council has had a data breach of its automated number plate recognition system. And then remaining in the UK, we have news that Meta is facing class actions. And staying in the UK and with Meta, Meta is being investigated for possible breaches of the Children's Code. We then travel across to Brussels, where the European Parliament has been reprimanded by the European Data Protection Supervisor. And then returning to a story we brought you recently, LastPass users are finding it is impossible to leave LastPass after the data breach. We then have news that WhatsApp has set out its grounds for appeal against the penalty imposed on it by European data regulators. And then to Malta, where the Maltese government is seeking controversial interpretations of the right to be forgotten. We then travel to the Netherlands and look at class actions against TikTok being taken in the Dutch courts. And then to the USA, where Goodwill has had a data breach. We then travel to Australia, where Bunnings has had a data breach. And then to California, where Acelion has reached settlement in its class action raised after its data breach. Staying with Acelion, but travelling to Australia, we have news that Transport for New South Wales was affected by the Acelion data breach. And then we return to Europe, where Europol has been ordered to delete petabytes of data within six months. And finally, this week, we return to the USA, where the FCC is proposing changes to data breach reporting requirements. So, as always, a good range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do really value your feedback, and we read each single piece of feedback which we receive. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback, it's not always possible for us to respond to individual pieces of feedback individually. Wash your hands, keep your social distance, wear your mask, stay safe. And we begin this week with news that the Austrian Data Protection Authority on Thursday ruled that an Austrian website provider's continued use of Google Analytics and the resultant transfer of personal data to Google violated GDPR. The ruling was in response to a series of representations filed by the Austrian Privacy Advocacy Group, NOYB, before the DPA on the basis of the European Court of Justice SREMS 2 decision, which, of course, if you are ready to listen to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've mentioned many times here on the show. And indeed, the SREMS 2 ruling stretches back all the way to January and February last year. And you can find out all about it in episodes 125 and 131 of the GDPR Weekly Show. Relying on the SREMS 2 decision, Noib's complaint alleged that both Google and as a data importer and the website provider as a data exporter violated Article 44 GDPR by transferring personal data to Google, which qualified as electronic communication service provider under Article 50, thereby making it legally amenable to US intelligence functionalities. Google argued that the data transfer did not constitute personal data under Article 4, Paragraph 1 of GDPR and that Chapter 5 of GDPR was applicable only upon the data exporter and not the data importer. The Data Protection Authority decision affirmed all of Noib's arguments but agreed with Google's claim that no data importer obligation existed under Chapter 5 of GDPR. Therefore, the DPA found that the data exporter to be solely liable for breaching GDPR obligations. However, the ruling found that the data transferred to Google, including personal user identifiers, IP address and browser parameters, 
was personal data under Article 4, Paragraph 1, and consequently dismissed due to a claim to transfer of non-personal data. No final penalty was imposed upon Google and the website provider. This ruling comes in the immediate aftermath of the European Data Protection Supervisor's decision on 11th of January, which sanctioned the European Parliament for violating SREMS 2 and Chapter 5 of GDPR by permitting data transfers through Google Analytics and another US-based company called Stripe. And we have more on that coming up later in this episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 365 days of reliable and objective news. To Sheffield in the UK now, and Sheffield Council have been reprimanded after 8.6 million vehicle number plates were shared on the internet. It was not just the number plates, but also associated dates, times and locations of the vehicles. The huge day breach has led to the council having its knuckles wrapped by the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. The ICO rebuked the council for the lack of control and overall governance of the automatic number plate recognition system. Officers blamed unauthorised access to the IT system. The council says access to the system was removed, data controllership of the system was established and a full audit of the system was completed. Each year the council is required to log and report any security incidents and personal data breaches. If we receive any further update from either the ICO or Sheffield Council, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we often mention Facebook. And this video, more than 44 million people could be compensated over unfair terms and conditions being imposed on Facebook users if a multi-billion pound lawsuit against the social media giant is successful. Competition law expert Dr. Lisa Lovell-Dromson has launched a class action lawsuit against Facebook's parent firm, Meta, at the Competition Appeal Tribunal, accusing the technology giant of abusing its market dominance and seeking a minimum of £2.3 billion in damages. The legal action argues that Facebook used its dominant position to force users to agree to terms and conditions, which then allowed the firm to generate billions in revenues from their data, while users received no monetary returns, which the claim labels as an unfair deal. The claim, the first of its kind against Meta in the UK, will seek financial redress for Facebook users in the UK between October 1st, 2015 and December 31st, 2019, who used the site at least once during this period, which is thought to be more than 44 million people. It argues that between 2015 and 2019, Facebook collected data both within its own platform and outside using mechanisms such as Facebook Pixel, an advertising tool that can be used on third-party websites to monitor how users act on their site. The action claims that Facebook was able to impose terms and conditions on UK users, which enabled this data gathering because of its market dominance. Dr Jormson said, In the 17 years since it was created, Facebook became the sole social network in the UK where you could be sure to connect with friends and family all in one place. Yet there was a dark side to Facebook. It abused its market dominance to impose unfair terms and conditions on ordinary Britons, giving it the power to exploit their personal data. I'm launching this case to secure billions of pounds of damages for the 44 million Britons who've had their data exploited by Facebook. In response, a spokesman for Meta said, People access our service for free. They choose our services because we deliver value for them and they have meaningful control of what information they share on Meta's platform and who with. We have invested heavily to create tools that allow them to do this. Doubtless we will be returning to this case in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Staying with Meta and the UK's data watchdog is seeking clarification from Mark Zuckerberg's Meta about parental controls on its popular virtual reality headset, as campaigners warned that it could breach an online children's safety code. The ICO said it was planning further discussion with the Facebook and Instagram owner about its £300 Oculus Quest 2 device, which was a sought-after gift over Christmas. 
However, child safety experts have warned that the headset's lack of parental controls, which would allow parents to block content that could be harmful to children, could expose young users to the threat of abuse on the platform. Research by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, CCDH, a campaign group has flagged multiple instances of abuse on VR chat, a top-selling social app for Oculus users. Examples of under-18s being harassed on VR chat included a young person's avatar, the digital representation used by people on virtual reality platforms, being followed by two heavily breathing men and another male joking in front of an under-18 that they were a convicted sex offender. The ICO said it would contact Meta about the device's compliance with the age-appropriate design code, also known as the Children's Code, which, as we mentioned previously here on the GDPR Weekly Show, came into force on the 2nd of September 2021. The Children's Code states that the best interest of the child should be a primary consideration for online services likely to be accessed by a person under 18. Online services and products that use personal data and are likely to be accessed by children are required to comply with the standards of our Children's Code, the ICO said. We are planning further discussions with Meta on its children's privacy and data protection by design approaches to Oculus products and virtual reality services. Parents and children who are concerned about how their data has been handled can complain to us at the ICO. The Children's Code focuses on preventing websites and apps from misusing children's data and also applies to connected devices but does not regulate content. A breach of the code could be punished by a fine of up to 18 million euros, 17.5 million pounds, or 4% of the company's global turnover which in case of Meta would be £2.5 billion, although formal warnings and reprimands are also possible. The architect to the Children's Code, the crossbench peer, Beban Kidron, said Meta could be challenged under several aspects of the code. For instance, users need to be over 13 to use the Oculus headset. A Facebook account, which has a minimum age of 13, is all that's required to operate it, which could put Meta in breach of the code's provisions requiring companies to check a user's age. VR Chat, which also has a minimum age requirement of 13, faces similar questions. Tidron said the worries about the Oculus VR headset demonstrate why we need to see safety by design as a new norm in technology. Kids using VR headsets like Oculus can access chat rooms and other features known to carry risk by simply ticking a box declaring that they meet the minimum age requirements. This is an insufficient barrier to underage use of services known to harbour child abuse, harassment, racism and pornography. Andy Burroughs, the Head of Child Safety Online Policy at the NSPCC, said there were substantive questions about whether Meta was complying with the children's code. Immersive virtual environments present an increased risk to children being exposed to harm in different and intensified ways, and it's clear that Meta hasn't developed the Oculus headset in a way that's at all consistent with a safety-by-design approach. Burroughs added that the CCDH research raised concerns about Zuckerberg's plans for the metaverse, a tactical term for the immersive VR world in which people interact socially and professionally. If this is the start of Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, it suggests he isn't committed to building it safely from the outset, and that much-needed lessons still have to be learnt, said Burroughs. The CCDH, which said it found more than 100 potential violations of Meta's policies over a 12-hour period on VR chat, said Meta was ignoring the need to embed even minimum protection for its metaverse plans. The public has a right to ask how anyone in good conscience could invite people onto a new platform without real confidence it's safe for them, said Imran Akmag, the CCDH chief executive. A Meta spokesman said the company was confident that Oculus headset met the conditions of the children's code. We're committed to meeting the obligations under the code and to providing young people with age-appropriate experiences, said the spokesperson, adding that the Oculus Terms of Service did not permit under-13s to create accounts or use a device. The spokesperson said Meta was also committed to building the Metaverse responsibly and had already announced a $50 million investment programme 
to ensure the concept met regulatory and legal concerns, distributing the money amongst organisations and academic institutions such as SEAL, National University and Women in Immersive Technology. We're hoping to soon, in the next few weeks, have Dr Jackie Taylor back with us on the GDPR Weekly Show. And you'll be aware that Dr Jackie Taylor was instrumental in parts of the Children's Code, so it'd be very interested to get her input into Meta and Oculus. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. In the first article this week, we mentioned about the European Data Protection Supervisor reprimanding the European Parliament for breaching GDPR regulations on its internal COVID-19 testing website. The website, which was set up in September 2020, received a number of complaints filed by six MEPs with the support of non-profit organisation NOYB due to deceiving cookie banners and transparency and data complications. According to the decision, the website, which used Ecolog, a third-party provider, was dropping cookies associated with Google Analytics and Stripe without ensuring adequate protection for the information being transferred to the US. In regard to the SREMS 2 ruling of July 2020, appropriate levels of protection must be adopted before data transfers outside of the European Union can transpire. The European Data Protection Supervisor has ordered rectification of any outstanding issues within one month from the date of the decision. It's been stated in the ruling that the European Parliament has been consistently responsive and collaborative throughout the investigation of the complaint and that as a date of the decision, most infringements had already been remedied. Wash your hands, keep your social distance, wear your mask, stay safe. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In episode 176, we brought you news about the data breach at LastPass. Oh, it seems that LastPass, who's still busy playing cleanup after that data breach, might be throwing its hat in the ring of taking a risk of burning cash. Because now after the data breach, obviously some people have chosen to try and leave LastPass, and they're finding this more difficult than it should be. Users are saying that it's nigh on impossible to get LastPass to export your personal data if you're a free user of LastPass. LastPass can lock you into the desktop browser offering after three switches between mobile or desktop. Once you're locked into the desktop plugin, you may not be able to export your data because of a myriad of unanswered bugs. Several LastPass forum users have reported that options to export data are simply greyed out with no way of bringing them back to life, and there's no solution. LastPass says simply, we are aware of this issue and we'll be releasing an update very soon to correct this. However, that statement by LastPass was made almost 10 months ago. Now, this inability to export your data falls foul of Article 20 of GDPR, the right to data portability. We've approached LastPass for a comment on this, but at the time of going to broadcast, no such comment has been received. When we do receive a comment from LastPass, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll remember that back in episode 170, we brought you news that WhatsApp had been granted right to appeal against their penalty of 225 million euros imposed by GDPR regulators. The fine was imposed by Ireland's Data Protection Commission, DPC, in August last year, but only after the European Data Protection Board, EDPB, had directed the DPC to make changes related to the enforcement action to be taken against WhatsApp under the GDPR, WhatsApp has now raised formal legal proceedings challenging EDPB's intervention. Dublin-based data protection law expert Andreas Charney of Pinsent Masons said 
The challenges raised by WhatsApp address points of technical interpretation of GDPR, as well as fundamental questions as to whether the EDPB applied due process and acted properly in exercising its powers. This is perhaps not unexpected given the impact of the EDPB's decision on the scope of findings and level of finding levied against WhatsApp by the DPC. Given that the main role of the EDPB is to ensure the consistent application of GDPR throughout the European economic area, this case will no doubt be watched very closely from various quarters. The case, which now stands to be considered by the EU's General Court, originated with complaints raised by individuals about WhatsApp's data processing. The complaints spurred the DPC to open an investigation in 2018 into whether WhatsApp complied with transparency obligations under GDPR. Following the investigation, the Irish DPC indicated its intention to serve WhatsApp with a fine of between 30 million and 50 million euros over the breaches. It said the company was responsible under Articles 12, 13 and 14 of GDPR, which set requirements around information organisations must provide data subjects about how they process their data and about their rights. However, because the case concerned not just Irish consumers but those from across Europe too, the DPC was required to consult other data protection authorities in the EU on its proposed actions under the GDPR's one-stop-shop mechanism. Some authorities, notably those in France, Germany and the Netherlands, raised objections with the DPC's draft decision, and when a compromise could not be agreed, the matter was referred to the EDPB for a binding decision. The final decision issued by the DPC reflected additional findings of infringement made by the EDPB, which included that WhatsApp had breached the principle of transparency under Article 5 of GDPR, a fact that on its own accounted for €90 million as the overall final fine imposed as well as an updated approach shaped by the EDPB on how the level of fines should be calculated. At the time, WhatsApp said it disagreed with the decision, describing the penalties imposed on it as entirely disproportionate. Now the company has lodged legal action seeking annulment of the EDPB's decision. To support its case, the company has raised seven separate pleas, including that the EDPB exceeded its competence under GDPR. WhatsApp also claimed that EDPB had held it to a higher standard of transparency than GDPR requires and excessively interpreted and applied the definition of personal data under the regulation. According to WhatsApp, the EDPB also breached the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. Specifically, it has pleaded that EDPB violated the presumption of innocence and the right to good administration. In the former case, by inappropriately reversing the burden of proof onto WhatsApp to demonstrate that its processing environment is such that the risk of re-identification of data subjects is purely speculative. And in the latter case, by disregarding WhatsApp's right to be heard and the EDPB's obligations to carefully and impartially examine evidence and to adequately state reasons. The company has also taken issue with the EDPB approach of determining GDPR fines and further argued that the watchdog violated the principle of legal certainty by failing to acknowledge that its decision puts forward novel interpretations and applications of several provisions of GDPR, with the consequence that the infringement was unpredictable. A date has not yet been fixed for the hearing of the appeal, but once we have these details, we will bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. To Malta now, and Malta's Justice Ministry and its Director of Courts are insisting that new rules to delete court decisions from a public register of decisions is bolstered by the recital to GDPR. But a legal clause within GDPR itself states that the vaunted right to be forgotten does not apply to court judgments. With major Maltese newspapers, the Institute of Maltese Journalists and the Daphne Foundation registering a letter of protest with the Maltese government, the right to forget policy employed by the court services agency could remove a swathe of court judgments from an online register that both public and press consult on a regular basis. 
The Court Service CEO, Eunice Ferrini, said the new legal notice is backed by the GDPR's Recital 20, which allows the courts and judicial authorities to specify processing procedures on personal data. It is wrong to state that LM 456 violates Article 17 of GDPR or that the acceptance of the application of Article 17 for exercising the right of freedom of expression and information prohibits the court services agency from allowing the anonymisation or withdrawal of a judgment from the court services website when there's no overriding public interest militating against such an action, Fiona said. Fiona said the GDPR's Recital 20, a preamble that helps in the interpretation of the law, shows that data protection applies to courts as long as it does not interfere with judicial independence. LN456 does not interfere with judicial independence or with the posting of personal data by the courts acting in their judicial capacity in any way whatsoever, he said. But the General Data Protection Regulation itself mandates that the right to be forgotten will not apply to court judgments, as laid down in Article 17, which describes such processing as carried out in the public interest or in the exercise of official authority vested in the controller. And in fact, court judgments are handed down and published in the exercise of the official judicial authority of the courts. But even the Maltese Constitution itself and the European Convention for Human Rights require the publicity of judgments, as laid down by the European Court's latest update on Article 6 of the Convention, right to a fair trial, the public character of proceedings protects litigants against the administration of justice in secret with no public scrutiny. It is also one of the means whereby confidence in the courts can be maintained. By rendering the administration of justice visible, publicity contributes to the achievement of a fair trial the guarantee of which is one of the fundamental principles of any democratic society. But in addition, European case law is replete with declarations that even in sensitive cases where national security is concerned, the full publicity of decisions cannot be denied. Complete concealment from the public of the entirety of a judicial decision cannot be justified, the European Court's guidance says. Even in cases where judgments were kept hidden for more than one year before they were declassified, maybe due to security or terror threats, the European High Commission noted that no convincing justification was for the fact that these judgments had not been made public for a considerable period of time. Up until 2020, decisions to remove judgments from the online search facility eTorts were taken by the Ad Hoc Evaluating Committee presided by the Torts Data Controller, who is also the Torts CEO, and four other members, the Directors and Registrars of the Criminal Torts, the Civil Torts, the Gozo Torts, and the Director of Strategy and Support within the Justice Ministry. The Torts Agency insists they are adhering to EU Regulation 2016-679 on the protection of natural persons with regards to the posting of personal data and on the free movement of such data. But during committee meetings, no minutes of the meetings are kept as each case is discussed and decided upon during the meeting. Judgments will now be anonymised or withdrawn from the Torts Service website after a lapse of time, even though they will still be publicly accessible at the Tort Archives. While it's been recognised that persons involved in tort cases have a right to be rehabilitated and reintegrated into society in order to proceed with their ordinary lives, the guidelines clearly acknowledge that an overriding public interest would stop such anonymisation or withdrawal. The Conduct Certificates Ordinance itself provides for time limits for convictions to be shown on conduct certificates, Ferroni said. Not surprisingly, perhaps, this decision has not gone down well with journalists. Article 19, the European Centre for Press and Media Freedom, the European Federation of Journalists, Free Press Unlimited, the International Press Institute, OBC Trans Europa and Reporters Without Borders all said it was disingenuous to rely on the right to be forgotten to remove court judgments from the public online register. This principle pertains to delisting from a commercial search engine such as Google under specific circumstances. This cannot be compared to removal of personal data from an online service administered by the government that contains public records, they said.
that knowledge and may be legitimate reason why certain judgments or part thereof may not be made public. One instance might be to protect the right of minors. In Malta, the national opposition has also filed a parliamentary motion asking for a legal notice to be withdrawn after several media organisations and lobby groups, including the Institute for Maltese Journalists, objected to the rules. Article 17, the right to forget, does of course include some exceptions. Paragraphs 1 and 2, it says, shall not apply to the extent that processing is necessary, or for exercising the right of freedom of expression and information, or for compliance with a legal obligation which requires processing by union or member state law to which the controller is subject, or for the performance of a task carried out in the public interest, or in the exercise of official authority vested in the controller, or for reasons of public interest in the area of public health, in accordance with point H and I of Articles 9, Paragraph 2 and Article 9, Paragraph 3, or for achieving purposes in the public interest, scientific or historical research purposes, or statistical purposes in accordance with Article 89, Paragraph 1, insofar as the right referred to in Paragraph 1 is likely to render impossible or seriously impair the achievement of the objectives of that processing, or for the establishment, exercise or defence of legal claims. Wash your hands, keep your social distance, wear your mask, stay safe. If you're a regular listener to Gigi Bell Weekly Show, you might remember back in episode 155, we brought you details of a penalty imposed on TikTok for violation of GDPR. Well, now in the Dutch courts, there's a class action forming to seek compensation for victims of the TikTok breach. What's interesting is that there are three different class actions taking place, each seeking different levels of compensation depending on the age of the person affected. So in the first case... They're seeking €2,000 per person for anyone under 13, €1,000 per person for anyone between 13 and 16, and €500 for anyone between 16 and 17. In the second case, they're seeking €1,750 for anyone less under 13, €1,500 for anyone between 13 and 17, and €1,250 for anyone over 18. And in the third claim... €1,500 for anyone under 13, €1,250 for anyone between 13 and 15, and €1,000 for anyone over 16. Now, it'll be interesting to see how these actions proceed, because so far the Dutch courts have been quite reticent in awarding damages for GDPR breaches, and indeed most awards have only been between €250 and €500 per person. There is one exception to this, which is when the court awarded €2,500 in damages for the unlawful retention of a claimant's medical record. However, of course, that contained so-called sensitive data. Now, there is an argument, but because the TikTok cases are all relating to minors, that that's also sensitive data. No dates yet been set for when these class actions will actually come before court, but we will, of course, bring you further updates here on the GDPR Weekly Show as we receive them. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To America now, and Goodwill has disclosed the data breach that affected the accounts of customers using its ShopGoodwill.com e-commerce platform. Shop Goodwill's Vice President Ryan Smith said in data breach notification letters sent to impacted individuals that some of their personal contact information was exposed due to a site vulnerability. He added that no payment information was exposed in an instant because ShopGoodwill does not store such data on its servers. We were recently alerted to an issue on our website which resulted in the exposure of some of your personal contact information to an unauthorised third party. This contact information includes your first and last name, email address, phone number and mailing address, Smith explained. 
No payment card information was exposed. Shopgrid Will does not store payment card information. While the third party access buyer contact information, they did not access your Shopgrid Will account. Shopgrid Will says it has now fixed the vulnerability to prevent a reoccurrence. In a statement, Smith said that Shopgrid Will is committed to the security of your personal information and we apologise for any frustration or concern this incident may cause. If we learn of any additional relevant information, we will contact affected individuals immediately. If anyone has a question that has not been answered, they should email inquiries at shopgoodwill.info. Goodwill has served over 25 million people with disabilities or disadvantages worldwide in 2019 and helped more than 230,000 individuals trained to find a job in banking, IT and healthcare. The not-for-profit funds itself by selling donated clothing and household goods by an extensive network of thousands of retail stores and on its shopgoodwill.com online auction site. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Australia now, and personal information from shoppers at Bunnings was potentially hacked following a security breach in the lead-up to Christmas. Bunnings Australia confirmed it has been embroiled in a customer data breach involving Flexbooker, a popular online booking and scheduling software company. And indeed, if you were listening to our podcast last week, you will of course have heard details there about the data breach at Flexbooker. Customers who used the Bunnings Drive and Select online service were informed on Wednesday of a possible security breach. We wanted to let you know that we have recently been made aware of a data security breach experienced by our third-party booking provider Flexbooker, an email from Bunnings said. Bunnings was quick to add that passwords, credit cards and mobile phone numbers were not accessed by the third-party site, but registered names and email addresses could have been compromised. We take the privacy and protection of our customer information very seriously and we sincerely regret this has happened, Bunnings said. Please be assured that passwords, credit card information, mobile numbers are not selected using Flexbooker to make a booking with us and we're confident that none of these categories of customer data has been compromised. Bunnings went on to say, while no action is required of our customers in response to this issue, as a precaution we encourage our customers to be cautious of any unusual activity in their email accounts and to regularly change passwords to enhance their online safety. If we receive any update from Bunnings, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To California now, and Acelion has reached a $8.1 million deal with a proposed nationwide class to end litigation over a breach of its legacy file transfer product, a platform that allowed companies to securely share large or sensitive files according to settlement papers filed in the California Federal Court. The Palo Alto-based tech company faced claims that it had failed to properly secure sensitive personal information of millions of individuals after hackers exploited a vulnerability in the Celion's platform, according to a motion for preliminary approval of the settlement filed by the plaintiff's lawyers on Wednesday this week. The data breach impacted a variety of Celion clients, including law firms Jones Day and Goodwin Proctor. The proposed class, millions of individuals whose data was stored by companies that used the Celion's file transfer product, in a recently amended complaint said information including names, birth dates, social security numbers, medical and driver's license information was also exposed. The current settlement would resolve claims only against the Celion, but there are pending agreements in cases against several Celion clients over the incident according to the filing. A representative for Celion, which rebranded in October 2021 to Kiteworks, said the company doesn't comment on litigation. Lawyers for the company from Latham and Watkins didn't immediately respond to any requests for comment, nor did a lawyer for the plaintiffs. Staying with Acelion, but going to Australia, and one of Acelion's customers, Transport for New South Wales, has found that more customers and employees have been impacted by the Acelion breach, but it still won't say how many in total have had their data accessed. 
In February 2021, the agency confirmed it was one of a number of large organisations worldwide to fall victim to the attack against Asadian's file transfer software. It did not reveal what types of data had been caught up in the breach at the time, pending an investigation by the whole government cybersecurity office, Cybersecurity New South Wales, to understand the full impact. But after completing their investigation, Transport for New South Wales has now confirmed that both customer and employee data have been accessed in the data breach and revised upwards the number of impacted individuals. A spokesperson for Transport New South Wales said they had begun notifying the additional impacted parties in mid-December 2021 and expected the process to continue until early this year. Notifications were delivered to customers and employees using email or registered mail, depending on what was available, with a dedicated case officer assigned to offer guidance and support to impacted parties. Wash your hands, keep your social distance, wear your mask, stay safe. The EU Central Police Agency, Europol, will be forced to delete much of a vast store of personal data that's been found to have amassed unlawfully by the EU Data Protection Watchdog. The unprecedented finding from the European Data Protection Supervisor targets what privacy experts are calling a big data arc containing billions of points of information. Sensitive data in the arc has been drawn from crime reports, hacked from encrypted phone services and sampled from asylum seekers never involved in any crime. According to internal documents, Europol's cache contains at least four petabytes, equivalent to three million CD-ROMs or a fifth of the entire contents of the US Library of Congress. Data protection advocates say the volume of information held on Europol systems amounts to mass surveillance and is a step on the road to it becoming a European counterpart to the US National Security Agency. The organisation whose clandestine online spying was revealed by whistleblower Edward Snowden. Among the many bytes of data held are sensitive data on at least a quarter of a million current or former terror or serious crime suspects and a multitude of other people for whom they came into contact. It's been accumulated from national police authorities over the last six years in a series of data dumps from an unknown number of criminal investigations. The European Watchdog has ordered Europol to erase data held for more than six months and gave it a year to sort out what to be lawfully kept. The confrontation pits the data protection watchdog against a powerful security agency being primed to become the centre of machine learning and artificial intelligence in policing. The ruling also exposes deep political divisions amongst Europe's decision makers, the trade-offs between security and privacy. The eventual outcome of their face-off has implications for the future of privacy in Europe and indeed beyond. The EU Home Affairs Commissioner, Ilva Johansson, appeared to defend Europol when she said, Law enforcement authorities need the tools, resources and the time to analyse data that's lawfully transmitted to them. In Europe, Europol is the platform that supports national police authorities with this Herculean task. The Commission says the legal concerns raised by the Data Protection Authority raise a serious challenge for Europol's ability to fulfil its duties. Last year, it proposed sweeping changes to the regulations underpinning Europol's powers. If made law, the proposal stood in effect retrospectively legalise the cache of data and preserve its contents as a testing ground for new artificial intelligence and machine learning tools. Europol denies any wrongdoing and said the watchdog may be interpreting the rules in an impractical way. Europol regulation was not intended by the legislature as a requirement which is impossible to be met by the data controller, i.e. Europol, in practice. Europol had worked with the Data Protection Authority to find a balance between keeping the EU secure and its citizens safe while adhering to the highest standards of data protection. Founded as a coordinated body for national police forces in the European Union and headquarters in The Hague in the Netherlands, Europol has been pushed by some member states as a solution to terrorism concerns in the wake of the 2015 Bataclan attacks and then chose to harvest data on multiple fronts. 
In theory, Europol is subject to tight regulation over what kinds of personal data it can store and for how long. Incoming records should be strictly categorised and only processed or retained where they have potential relevance to high-value work such as counter-terrorism or indeed large-scale fraud. But the full content of what it holds are unknown, in part because of the unstructured way that the data regulator found that Europol has been treating data. Concerns over Europol's treatment of sensitive data prompted the watchdog to raise its own questions in 2019. Its initial findings in September that year showed that data sets shared with Europol were stored without the proper checks to verify whether people stooped up within them ought to be monitored or indeed their data retained. Access to the ARC is restricted to authorised personnel and a lot of the content has been examined, cleansed and used legally. When Europol failed to convincingly answer the Data Protection Authority's concerns, the Data Protection Authority publicly admonished Europol in September 2020, making clear what was at stake. Data subjects run the risk of wrongfully being linked to any criminal activity across the EU, with all the potential damage for their personal and family life, freedom of movement and occupation that that entails. The European Commission's nervousness over a public clash was enough to pull Monique Perret, the EU's Director General for Home Affairs, into a meeting between the two agencies in December 2021. Sources said the watchdog had been encouraged to tone down its public criticism of Europol. But the head of the Data Protection Authority said that the meeting was the last moment for Europol to add some information that wasn't added in their last replies to their letter. As the meeting did nothing to answer the Data Protection Authority's concerns on lawful retention of data, there was no other way to solve the problem, they said, than to issue a decision to erase the data over six months. In 2020, Europol trumpeted its involvement together with French and Dutch police in hacking the encrypted phone service EncroChat unleashing a torrent of personal data into the ARC. When the secret operation was revealed by Europol and its judicial counterpart Eurojust, it was hailed as one of the biggest successes in battling organised crime in Europe's history. In the UK alone, around 2,600 people were taken into custody by August 2021, and Nicky Holland, the Director of Investigations at the UK National Crime Agency, compared the hack to having an inside person in every top organised crime group in the country. Europol copied the data extracted from 120 million chat messages and tens of millions of call recordings, pictures and notes, then parceled it out to national police forces. The flood of evidence of drug trafficking and other offences drowned out qualms about the implications of the operation. The hacking operation that turned EncroChat phones into mobile spies acting against their users has important similarities with surveillance malware such as Pegasus. Lawyers from Germany, France, Sweden, Ireland, the UK, Norway and the Netherlands all representing clients tore up in the aftermath met in Utrecht in November 2021. They found that cases were being built across Europe based on evidence of which authorities were unwilling to reveal the provenance. Investigators and prosecutors were hiding or deforming the facts, said one German attorney. We all agree that these are not the best people in the world, but what are we ready to sacrifice in order to convict one more person? It's important to realise that intro chat clientele included non-criminals, including people such as lawyers, journalists and business people. The Dutch attorney, Harun Raza, was one of them and said he bought an EncroChat handset at a phone shop in Rotterdam. He demanded his data be erased. As far as I can understand, a copy still lies in Europol's databases where it could remain forever. Since 2016, Europol has been running a mass screening programme in refugee camps in Italy and Greece, sweeping up data from tens of thousands of asylum seekers in search of alleged foreign fighters and terrorists. According to a partially declassified inspection report obtained under freedom of information laws, routine checks by Europol migrants crossing EU borders are not allowed as there's no legal basis for such a programme. 
The screening may have resulted in migrants' personal data being stored on a criminal database, regardless of any links being found to crime or terrorism. Europol has declined to reveal any operational details. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally this week to America, where the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, has revealed its plans to change the rules regarding how businesses report both data breaches and data leaks to their customers and to the federal government. The FCC chairwoman has put forward a notice of proposed rulemaking, NPRM, that would begin the process of changing the government agency's rules for notification to customers and federal law enforcement about data breaches. She explained in a press release that the increased frequency of breaches and leaks is why she shared the new proposed measures with colleagues at the FCC, saying, Current law already requires telecommunication carriers to protect the privacy and security of sensitive customer information, but these rules need updating to fully reflect the evolving nature of data breaches and the real-time threat they pose to affected customers. Customers deserve to be protected against the increase in frequency, sophistication and scale of these data leaks and the consequences that can last many years after exposure of personal information. I look forward to having my colleagues join me in taking a fresh look at our data breach reporting rules to better protect consumers, increase security and reduce the impact of future breaches. One of the proposals, and the one which might be most important, is that the current seven business day mandatory waiting period for notifying customers of a breach would be eliminated. If the proposal was accepted, this would mean that consumers would have more time to change their passwords and even invest in identity theft protection services before those responsible for a breach could use the data against them. At the same time, the proposal would expand customer protections by requiring businesses to notify consumers of inadvertent breaches or data leaks. This could put additional pressure on companies to properly secure their data as their business could be affected by any news that they had left the database unsecured online. The proposal would also require mobile carriers to notify the FCC of all reportable breaches in addition to both the FBI and the US Secret Service. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurer production. Until next time, bye-bye.